Welcome to the Narrative Preacher Podcast, where we live to tell the story. I'm your host, Shay Zellweger, and joining me this episode, episode number three, is no one, actually. Turns out it is very hard to find a guest who wants to come and talk about what they're preaching on Advent a month ahead of time, because most preachers are very busy getting ready for Advent and Christmas and other such holidays that are coming up. So I'm flying solo tonight. But be not discouraged, because if you stick around until the end of this episode, I have a special present for you, which may come in handy as you are planning your Advent sermon series and possibly even Christmas. So stick around. This will be a shorter episode than usual, as I won't have an interview, and I'll only be giving one perspective on each of our lectionary texts for the month. So let's dive right into it, and let's begin by talking about December 4th. The lections for December 4th are Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and verses 28 through 29. These are some very familiar verses to a lot of folks. Uh, they are the ones where we talk about the day of the Lord being great and terrible, and we want to know who can possibly endure it. Even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, all that repentant stuff. And then the lovely cadence that we all know and have heard spoken both in the New Testament and in the Hebrew Scriptures about the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh, sons and daughters prophesying, old men dreaming dreams, young men seeing visions, etc., etc. If you have spirit, spirit of gentleness in your hymnal, you are probably humming it to yourself right now because of that. In fact, I am going to go ahead and have that song be our closing song that day. So I decided to get a little creative since this is the first Sunday in December, the second Sunday in Advent, and I wanted to draw a parallel between Joel and another familiar story. And the story that I ultimately settled on was the story of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. You may not be aware, but Christmas was once upon a time believed to be a great time to tell ghost stories. If you have listened recently to It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, you know, because you've been in a store at some point after September 30th and they were playing Christmas music and you heard it, you may have caught that line in there that says that there will be scary ghost stories and tales of the glory of Christmases long, long ago. Christmas ghost stories used to be a tradition in England, and the most famous of those stories is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's actually not the only Christmas ghost story that Dickens wrote, and it's certainly not the only Christmas ghost story available to us to read, but it's the one people are really familiar with. And the story of Ebenezer Scrooge revolves around this prediction that comes from the ghost of Christmas future, who comes to Scrooge and shows him his fate, a fate where he is dead and gone, and before he's even cold in the grave, people are splitting up his possessions, and the people who 
served him and who he thought had some modicum of respect for him are celebrating his death. They're, they're happy and excited about the fact that he's dead and they can finally divvy up his stuff and go about their merry lives without having to deal with Ebenezer Scrooge. And this kind of reminds me of the context that this Joel passage is being set in, this this great and terrible day of the Lord that no one can possibly endure, the entire Joel story is, up until this point, a story about this thing that is coming that is going to be terrible and inescapable. And as we know, death is, in fact, inescapable. The death of Ebenezer Scrooge is seen as inescapable. And both of these stories take a turn. We know how the Scrooge story turns because we've seen probably five different versions of A Christmas Carol every year since we were children. We're all very familiar with Michael Caine waking up in a Muppet Christmas Carol or some other inferior version of that story. But there's this moment just before that, where he turns to the ghost of Christmas future and begs the ghost of future, please speak comfort, speak to me words of comfort, and the ghost remains silent. It's this darkest before the dawn kind of situation. Now in Joel, we have this turn that happens in chapter 2, and I think we do need to put it in the context of all the stuff that was said before we get to this passage all of that doom and gloom talk, but there's this turn of yet even now, even now you are able to repent and turn and I will bless you. And Scrooge has a very similar experience where he wakes up and realizes it's not too late and he changes his ways and lives are changed and lives are even saved if we follow the, uh, the, little Tim story portion there, and everything is better. So I have decided that for that week, I'm going to go ahead and draw that parallel between those two stories and get us ready and in the Christmas mood because, hey, it's December and people want to be in the Christmas mood, but at the same time, stick with the whole Advent thing. And I also am going ahead and and going to slip in a, a personal story about a similar period that I went through where I was maybe not the most giving and loving and caring person, but was a little more focused on just me and, and my own self-interest. And if you go that route, that might be worth uh, following for you as well. Now we go from there to December 11th, and the December 11th passage is Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is Upon Me. This is a beloved passage, but this is a very tricky passage for Advent. It's a tricky passage because as Christians, we know Isaiah 61 as something that Jesus said. We know he picked up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he read it in the temple and that he was reading something and it was prophecy. Despite that, we know it as coming from the mouth of Jesus. And it is very tempting anytime we hear this story to put it in the context of Jesus. But December 11th is the third Sunday in Advent. 
And Advent is supposed to be a period where we're waiting for Jesus because Jesus isn't here yet. So it's going to be a very challenging, I think, exercise to go through the process of developing a sermon around Isaiah 61, where Jesus is only hinted at, where we talk about this prophecy as something unfulfilled, something that is looking ahead to a time when the Spirit of Lord will indeed be upon a person. Now, yes, on the one hand, we do believe that Jesus was correct when he said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. But I don't think that that is a a mutually exclusive statement from believing that this prophecy can continue to be fulfilled in today's time. I was at an ordination recently where a charge was given, and it was a charge that I've I've heard multiple times, and I'm sure you've heard it as well. And someone spoke to the ordinand and said to them, remember as you preach, if it's not good news to the poor, it's not the gospel. If it's not comfort to those who mourn, if it's not freedom for the oppressed and for the captive, if it's not all of these things that are listed in Isaiah 61, then it is not the gospel. And I've heard that before, you've probably heard that before, but because I was in the middle of preparing my December sermons when I heard it this time, I said, yeah, maybe there's something that I can do with that. I also can't help noting that this is supposed to be Joy Sunday for those who follow the classic uh, themes over the course of the four weeks of Advent. And there's this great portion of Isaiah 61 that Jesus does not quote that talks about rejoicing in the Lord. My whole being shall rejoice, exult in God, for God has clothed me with the garments of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks God's self with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. All of that stuff is in there. Um, This is... A salvation text, uh, a true salvation text, not the whole, say these magic words, ask Jesus to come into your heart, you'll be saved, that sort of thing. Although I, I know that there are many people who hold tightly to that particular aspect of salvation. But this is a salvation text about being saved from present circumstances. And I, as I mentioned on the last podcast, am engaging my people in the Advent Conspiracy this year, and a big part of that is talking about how we can effectively make differences in others' lives. So this, for me, is a really great opportunity to speak about what is the gospel, what brings about that rejoicing in God, how can we make sure that what we do is good news to the poor. The next Sunday, we start to get into some Jesus stuff. It's December 18th, for those keeping track. And we get to dive into the book of Luke. I'm really excited about the book of Luke because I have had this commentary from the Belief Bible Commentary series on the book of Luke from Justo Gonzalez, sitting on my shelf, just waiting for this to come up in the narrative lectionary, and I've just had a blast starting to read that. 
Luke 1, 26 through 45 is the Annunciation, and it's the visit to Elizabeth. And uh, this is a much-trod text, shall we say. It's something that comes up quite frequently. And often when I tell the story of the Annunciation, when I talk about Mary, I take it from the perspective of here is a woman who is being lifted up in a society by by God in a society where women are second class. She has been made the first among the first class by God. And what a wonderful testament that even in a time when this group was, was seen as second class citizens, seen as inferior to men, God would say, I'm going to accomplish what I want to accomplish through a woman. There are plenty of stories of gods coming to earth that don't require them to be born. They just take on human form or swan form or tree form or any of a number of other forms. They simply do it. They they cloak themselves in flesh and they walk among humanity for a while. And then when they're bored, they go away. So God could have chosen to simply take on flesh, come down as an adult human male, as a, as a privileged member of society, and done that. And instead, God chose to be born of a woman and to have a woman care for Christ, to care for Jesus for an extended period of time. Joseph is not a big player in this story. But the pericope is is framed a little bit differently this time. And especially putting it together with the Elizabeth portion of the story, I'm taking a slightly different tact here. And there is a way of looking at the story that says that Mary didn't really have a choice in the matter. Mary was a faithful person, as far as we can tell. She did something to find favor with God. But she was a woman, and she was a human. And when your God comes down and tells you, hey, I'm going to make you pregnant, uh, you don't really have in your mind the option to say, no, no, that's not, no. We know how power dynamics work. We We know that... A person in a position of power over another person can't reasonably expect consent to occur. And there is no greater power differential than between God and humans, especially poor human women in the first century. But she's a good and faithful woman, and and I want to believe there is, you know, some degree of consent, at least as she's able to give it. But This story starts off essentially with God scaring Mary, because angels are scary. And it starts off really great, you know, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, you found favor with God. And then it takes this hard left turn. Mary, I I wanted to let you know, you're going to get pregnant and have a baby, and you're going to name the baby Jesus, and he's going to be the greatest person who ever lived, so that'll be really cool. And Mary's confused. She's not married yet. But... The angel hasn't really specified a timeline, so she asks him for details. How can this be? For I am a virgin. 
you know, is is this gonna happen later, maybe? And no. Nope, it's gonna happen immediately. And this is going to be the son of God, not the son of your future husband. It's totally fine because your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant. That feels like a non sequitur to me because Elizabeth got pregnant by her husband and Mary is getting pregnant explicitly not by her betrothed, but so be it. She accepts her fate and she runs away. She leaves town to go stay with her husband. She's trying to plan her next move, I think. It, it, it appears that she knows that if she stays in town and begins to show and just hangs out there, that people are going to talk and it's not going to end well. We can remember that the Matthew story talks about Joseph planning to divorce her, so clearly it's not a thing that's going to end well. But what I really love about this story and the way that this was framed is I imagine Mary approaching Elizabeth's house, trying to come up with, what do I say to her? She, she's my best hope. She's really my only hope. Because she has experienced a miraculous God-granted pregnancy. So if anyone is going to believe what I'm going to say, it's her. But I don't know if she's going to believe what I'm going to say. So I, I picture Mary walking up to the house, being very anxious. Maybe Elizabeth won't believe her. Maybe she'll get kicked out. Maybe she'll be shunned. The mechanisms of their pregnancies are just too different. But God has this covered. You know, as soon as Mary walks in the door, before she can even try to explain what has happened to her, Elizabeth greets her with this joyful, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb. It's so great just to be in your presence. You know, Mary's welcome is, is divinely arranged and the anxiety that she must have felt while traveling to see Elizabeth is completely circumvented by her cousin's unprompted greeting. And once I have people in that place, what I am hoping to remind us of is that there are many in our lives who travel through the world carrying secret shames, unsure how they will be received if they can bring themselves to open up. And they are not guaranteed the same kind of reception that Mary got from Elizabeth. And so what would it look like if we, like Elizabeth, said to those who are suffering through mental illness, through addiction, financial distress, marital discord, unplanned pregnancy, all of those those secret shames that society tells us we can't share, what if they were able to hear from us Greetings, you who are highly favored, you who are the most important person, you who God has chosen in a special way. It is an honor simply to be in your presence. You know, we're, we're drawing closer and closer to the day when we celebrate the birth of a child who was conceived out of wedlock, born to parents from the wrong side of the track, and I am hoping by the end of this service, my folks will wonder what will happen if we get divinely inspired to speak hope and joy into the lives of others. So that's where I'm going with that text. And finally, we have our twin texts for Christmas Eve and Christmas. And these overlap 
So I don't know that they can rightly be called separate texts, but Luke 2, 1 through 14, plus parentheses 15 through 20 is Christmas Eve, and Christmas Day is Luke 2, I want to say 8 through 20. I actually didn't check that because I remember they were they were very close to one another. So we know this story. This is this is Jesus being born and shepherds coming and seeing Jesus. Uh, these are these are pretty familiar stories I would hope to anyone that is preaching in a Christian context. So there's a big question about how do you make the Jesus story fresh? And I'll be honest with you, on Christmas Eve, we are simply reading the story interspaced, interspaced, interspersed. What word goes there? Interspersed. I think that's the one. You all get to hear me fumble through words. Uh, we're, we're reading the Christmas story interspersed with carols. That is what we are doing on Christmas Eve. I am not preaching a sermon. I know there are schools of thought that say you have to give the people a sermon on Christmas Eve because that's one of the two times they're going to be in church, some of them, and that's the only time that they get to hear the gospel. And I hear that, but I'm not going there this year. And as I as I weighed what to do with these Christmas Eve services, I really concluded that maybe it's time to just let that text speak for itself. So I'm hoping to get some readers together, including myself, who can breathe life into these scriptures simply by reading the story of Jesus's birth, of the visits, of the various things that happen with passion and with energy. That's how we're going to be doing our Christmas Eve I think it will turn out well. I have faith in my people. And Christmas Day, I am expecting very low attendance. And we are going to gather around the piano, and we're going to sing some songs together. And I've even got a little thing in the brochure for that particular week that says, hey, come on Christmas Day, you can even come in your pajamas. But there will be a, a short homily, and it will be about the shepherd's visit to Jesus. And what I'm going to zoom in on there is that the shepherds get up and they leave their flocks. And a little while later in Jesus's life, he talks about shepherds getting up and leaving their flocks, leaving the 99 sheep to go and find the one sheep who was lost. And I've heard various opinions about what exactly that passage is saying. You know, Jesus says, who among you, uh, if they have 100 sheep and one goes missing, would not leave the 99 to go find it. And there seems to be a lot in commentaries that say, well, pretty much every smart shepherd would not leave the 99 to go and find the one sheep. That's a stupid decision to make. And I see that parallel between Luke 10 and Luke 2. They're also both in Luke, and I have to imagine Luke did that at least somewhat on purpose. And Jesus 
is suddenly this very important person in the shepherds' lives. Not because they have any idea who Jesus is, but because some angels showed up and said, hey, you got to go check out this Jesus person, that they are willing to, to abandon their flocks. They go into town, they see the baby, they worship the baby, and then they don't go back to their flocks immediately. They go and tell other people about it. And that is a very risky decision for these shepherds to make. It's possible they don't even own the sheep that they have abandoned. In fact, it's pretty likely that they don't even own the sheep that they have abandoned. But they leave them at risk to go see Jesus, and they continue to leave them at risk to go and tell others about Jesus. So for the few who brave the Christmas morning weather, or lack thereof, but manage to crawl out of bed and leave the tree and the piles of wrapping paper and whatever their Christmas morning traditions are and come to worship with us, I am going to be asking, what is that risk for us today? What, what is the thing that we can risk leaving behind to tell others about the Jesus that we have encountered. So those are all of the texts for the month of December, and I got through them rather quickly, hopefully, I think. Uh, according to my timer, I went through approximately five sermons worth in the time it takes me to preach one sermon. So I'll call that a win. Hopefully you hung out through most of that, because if you did, I have my surprise for you. So if you go to narrativepreacher.net, which is where this podcast is housed, and if you go into the show notes for this episode, which is episode three, there is going to be a link in there to a Google Doc. And this Google Doc is going to give you my custom-created Advent lighting readings for all of Advent. So if you were like, oh, I'd like to spruce up my Advent readings this year, I have a resource for you. It's designed to be done by two leaders because I like to have families or other groups of people do the Advent lighting rather than just one liturgist. And I will tell you, I've mentioned several times now that I'm doing Advent Conspiracy this year. What I attempted to do with each of these readings is to weave together in a very simple, straightforward way. They're not super long, but weave together the traditional four themes of Advent with the four Advent conspiracy themes and also pay homage to that week's narrative lectionary text. So if this is something that is of interest to you, you can go. You are free to make use of that doc whichever way you choose. Adapt it. Make it better than anything that I had. It also has a verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel as the song of response for each of those four Sundays. Give it a look. If it comes in handy to you, go ahead and use it. The other thing I wanted to mention was one other special service that we will be doing at one of my churches. It'll be a joint service between the two churches. And you may already do one of these, but if you don't, I'd just like to encourage you to consider doing a longest night service. These are also called blue Christmas services or empty chair services. 
they they have a lot of different names, but the longest night service for my churches takes place on December 21st this year, which is the winter solstice, the actual longest night of the year. And this is an opportunity for those people who deal with the dark side of the holidays, who are experiencing loss, who are remembering painful things, who are going through things alone. They are able to come and have a space where people simply get to hear, hey, we see you, we are here for you throughout this difficult time. You are not mandated to be happy and cheery and singing and doing all of the things that people do at the holidays if that's not where you're at. So I would just encourage you to go ahead and, and consider, if you don't already do one, offering something along those lines. And there are a lot of different orders of service available for those Mine is borrowed from another person who has given me permission, but I can't pass it on without their permission. So, um, but there, there are a lot of different services available there and it's, it's readings and it's, you know, some of the, the drearier Christmas songs, things like in the bleak midwinter and silent night. And we offer communion and we offer a chance to light a candle for those that you are missing. And it's always just such a very meaningful service for the few who come to it. And I really believe that every church should either offer one itself or get together with a group of other churches or even an interfaith group and say, we're going to provide a space for people who are in need of an opportunity to grieve and mourn in the midst of all of this corporate rejoicing. So I will leave you with that. Uh, as always, check out the show notes for any of the resources that I've mentioned over the course of this podcast, and we will be back with our January episode, hopefully with a special guest. Uh, also, I'd like to invite you to, if, if you feel that you have any benefit from this podcast, if you've been listening over the first few episodes and you've put some of the stuff to use and you found value in it, we do have a Patreon account available. That goes 50% straight to my churches to support their ministry and, and the other 50% of any donations that you give will be for the sake of making this podcast better, giving us better access to guests, making the recordings better, doing all of those things so that we can be beneficial to as many pastors who are preaching the narrative lectionary as possible. Have a fantastic Christmas and Advent, and we will see you in January. <laughs>